0: Well, hello and welcome to the broadcast. Matthew Arnold here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. am glad to be back with you live this week. Uh, last week we had to run an encore at the last minute because a storm knocked out my internet provider, and so it's been like three weeks ago now that we spoke about the importance of forgiveness, and I said I would share with you 14 questions and answers on forgiveness from Father Al Lauer, who's the priest that literally wrote the book on forgiveness. Well, two weeks ago we ran out of time, and Last week we weren't live, so we're going to finally rectify that situation later on in today's program. Also, it appears that I may not be the only one suggesting that it might be time to retire the qualifier traditional in front of Catholic, and we're going to talk about that, among other things. But first, uh, we began this week with the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost, and I'd like to share with you the gospel from that Sunday. It's the story of Jesus healing a sick woman and raising the dead girl, it's Matthew's version from Matthew 9:18 through 26. As he was speaking these things unto them, behold, a certain ruler came up and adored him, saying, Lord, my daughter is even now dead, but come, lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus, rising up, followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who was troubled with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I shall touch only his garment, I shall be healed. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Be of good heart, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus was come into the house of the ruler, and saw the minstrels and the multitude making a rout, he said, Give place, for the girl is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. And when the multitude was put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose, and the fame hereof went abroad into all that country. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. The man, called by Matthew a certain ruler, is identified by Mark and Luke as Jairus, a ruler or administrator of a synagogue. So Jai was, was responsible for looking after the building itself and supervising worship and running a synagogue school on the weekdays, finding rabbis to teach on the Sabbath, not unlike the administration of a parish church today. And the woman in the story is unidentified beyond the fact that she had suffered for 12 years with an, an issue of blood, a hemorrhage. Most scholars suspect it was some kind of menstrual disorder, and in any case, like the lepers, and the demon-possessed men that Jesus cured in the previous chapter, this woman was considered unclean because blood was considered unclean. Therefore, a woman with a hemorrhage was unclean, as was every woman during her periods of menstruation. So for 12 years, this woman would have been one of the, the untouchables. She would have been unable to worship at the synagogue or to enter the temple in Jerusalem or to otherwise lead a normal life. Uh, being unclean. She knew it was a crime to touch Jesus because her touch would have rendered him unclean. But she thought, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made clean. And she did. And Jesus restored her. And there's a couple of things to learn from this. Number one, that in our times of desperation, we don't have to worry about what is the correct way to reach out to God. Like this woman, we can simply reach out in faith and trust that he will respond. And secondly, sometimes we're tempted to give up on people or situations that haven't changed for many years. Uh, I take myself as an example. I've been trying to lose weight for years. And for years, I take some off, and then I plateau, and then I start putting it back on, and then I put it all back on, and then some. And then the cycle starts over. Now, I just read about a woman who needed to lose a hundred pounds and she lost 80 and then plateaued. But she didn't put the weight back on. She kept with the dieting and exercising for 15 years. She was stuck there. And then she finally lost that last 20 pounds. Now that's, that's an inspiration to me. And it's a Christian woman who uh, has actually, you know, written this kind of as a testimony. The point is that God can give us, Purpose and hope, and God can change what seems unchangeable. And that's the good news. You know, also, the woman in the Gospels, her healing took place after she touched our Lord's garment. And that puts me in mind of the many instances of healing and blessings that have been mediated through the uh, holy objects that we call relics. And so we're going to talk about that later on in the program. Now, as for the ruler of the synagogue, In Matthew's telling, he didn't come to Jesus until his daughter was dead. In other words, he turned to Jesus as a last resort when it was too late for anyone else to help. Lord, he said, my daughter is even now dead, but come lay thy hand upon her and she shall live. And true to the man's faith, uh, Jesus simply went to the girl and raised her. He said to the musicians and the other professional mourners, who were there, he said, "'Give place, for the girl is not dead, but sleepeth.'" And they laughed him to scorn, it says. Now, in both the Old and New Testaments, sleep is a metaphor for death, falling asleep. Uh, The death of the Blessed Virgin before her assumption for many years was referred to as the Dormition of Mary. That means the falling asleep. So in the Psalms, in Daniel, in Paul's letters, we see sleep as a metaphor for death. So Jesus is not denying that the girl was dead. On the contrary, he's indicating that he is going to raise her from death as if from sleep. So the message, the takeaway here is for our lives is that Christ can make a difference when it seems like it's too late for anyone else to help. He can bring healing to relationships. He can release from addictions and bad habits and, and he can grant forgiveness and give healing to emotional scars. And right now, if your situation looks hopeless, remember that Christ can do the impossible. Because nothing is impossible with God. And that gospel also has something to say to us about mockery and ridicule. When Jesus entered into the house of Jairus and said, the girl's not dead, but sleepeth, the crowd laughed him. Laughed at him. They laughed him to scorn the scripture says, because they did not understand the meaning of his words or what he was about to do. And mockery, ridicule, is still the enemy of all that is good and true and beautiful. Catholics today seek to serve God by word and example. Pastors who preach uh, the contempt of the world or the love of humility and mortification, they are similarly scorned, both by the world and all too often by the worldly in the church. Father Goffin, in his explanation of the epistles and gospels, said, Permit not yourself to be led astray by those who ridicule your zeal for virtue. Pay no heed to them according to the example of Jesus, and trust in him who was himself derided for your sake. He suggests that we say to ourselves, that we pray, Lord Jesus, I know that the servant is not greater than his master. When thou was so often mocked, why should it appear strange to me to be jeered at and called senseless for endeavoring to practice devotion and virtue? I would not fare differently from thee, my Lord and my God. Reminds me of um, the words of Ittai the Gittite, what he said to King David when they had to flee uh, Jerusalem when Absalom was, uh, you know, the insurrection. Uh, and Ittai the Gittite, King David said, you know, you don't have to come with me. He pointed out that he wasn't even an Israelite. And he, said, in what place soever thou shall be, Lord my king, either in death or in life, there shall thy servant be. You see, he wasn't he wasn't afraid of of mockery or ridicule, or even uh, physical persecution. And um, back in the day, the popular spiritual writer, Mother Mary Mary Loyola, that's a tongue twister, she commented on this by saying, which of us will have the courage to say this as we kneel before our king crowned with thorns, or at the foot of the cross?" She says, let me look into the heart of my king What makes him suffer willingly in spite of the repugnance of nature? The same recognition of the Father's hand in all that befalls him, to which his word in the garden testified. The chalice that my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? The faith that sees the Father's hand in every trial, this it is that holds the secret of meekness. To it alone belongs the strength of endurance, the peacefulness of trust the crown of thorns today, the crown of glory hereafter. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, got lots to do on the program today. We're coming up on a break. But before we go, I wanted to remind you that this January the 14th, and that's coming up fast. It's only a couple of months away. January fourteenth, uh, it's the 2023 Virgin Most Powerful Evangelization Conference here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. All-day event, our featured speakers will be Johnny Romero, the man who, uh, and I should say, the man who literally wrote the book on lay evangelization, our own Terry Barber. So admission is $35 for a single, $60 for a married couple. Online registration is open now at vmpr.org, or you can call the office at 877-526-2151 to register by phone. That's for the January 14th, BMPR Evangelization Conference. And speaking of conferences, also coming up before you know it is our annual Spiritual Warfare Conference on March 25th and 26th of 2023. And this year we have a very special guest. Bishop Joseph Strickland will be joining us along with world-renowned exorcist Father Chad Ripperger, our own Jesse Romero, Dr. Dan Schneider, Kyle Clements from uh, the Liber Cristo Deliverance Ministry. And once again, we're going to be holding the conference this year at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Pomona. So admission is $95 for a single, $180 for a married couple. It sells out fast. Visit vmpr.org and register now. And we'll be right back with lots more New Nonsense Catholic right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're going to be uh, talking a little later on, the, on in the program about relics and, and w- what that is all about, the veneration of relics in the Catholic Church. It's something, a question that kind of was brought up because of uh, last Sunday's gospel from the Extraordinary form. But uh, first, we're going to look at um, some questions and answers on forgiveness from Father Al Lauer. Uh, Father Al Lauer, God rest his soul, literally wrote the book on forgiveness. And I'm not kidding. He wrote a book called The Book on Forgiveness. And in the very first chapter, he writes, When I was first ordained a priest, I believed that over 50% of all problems were due to unforgiveness. After 10 years in ministry, I revised my estimate and maintained 75 to 80% of all health, marital, family, and financial problems came from unforgiveness. Now, after more than 20 years in ministry, I have concluded that over 90% of all problems are rooted in unforgiveness. So that's quite a statement. And obviously, we can't do justice to his whole book on on a single podcast. And um, I would love to go over everything we did a couple of weeks ago to to give context for uh, what we're about to do. But um, you can visit—Father Al was the founder of Presentation Ministries— and there is a um, website presentationministries.com actually you can read the entire book there for free and also on that uh, website there is an article where father al answered all the most common questions on forgiveness so you can access it there but that's what we're going to be talking about now just going to run down that laundry list with my commentary Number one, the question is, what is forgiveness? And according to Father Al, forgiveness is a decision. He says it's our decision to accept God's grace to let go of the hurt due to sins committed against us. As Pope John II said, forgiveness is the restoration of freedom to oneself. It is the key held in our own hand to our prison cell. And that's a drum I've been beating for a long time, that forgiveness is as much for the forgiver as it is for the forgiven. The next question is, how often must I forgive? This is the question that St. Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 22. Uh, uh, He says, how many times must I forgive? As many as seven times. And seven in the Bible is, is a number that represents completeness. But Jesus says, no, I say, which is a nice way of saying indefinitely. You have to always forgive. Number three, are there any sins committed against me which I don't have to forgive? Here, but the answer is no. The Lord calls us to forgive all sins, even the most egregious. But we never have occasion to forgive others for their character or their attitude. Or their motives. We're not supposed to judge those things. That's what Jesus is on about when he says judge not. Obviously, we recognize people's sins, otherwise we wouldn't know, you know, what we had to forgive them for. But when it comes to why they sinned in the first place, that's only God knows the heart. And this is related to the next question, which is, well, then when I forgive, am I condoning sin? And the answer to that question is also no. To forgive is not to condone or to excuse or justify the evil done against you. But when we ask that question, am I condoning sins? Think of your own sins. Think of my sins. You and I expect the Lord to forgive all our sins. But we know for a fact that he condones none of them. In the gospel, like he he says to, to any number of people, go and sin no more. He does not congone sin, and yet he forgives. Number five, must I forgive if the person offending me isn't sorry? And Father Al answers this question, yes. He says forgiveness, forgiveness is before forgiveness, to give pardon before it's asked for. And even if it's never asked for, even if the person never asks you for forgiveness, you need forgiveness yet to forgive them, and we'll talk more about this in a second. Uh, This is an important question, number six. Must I forgive if a person continues to hurt me? And the answer to that question is yes. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself has not done. And while hanging on the cross, Jesus forgave his enemies, even as they continued to spit at him and blaspheme him, even as they were murdering him. So yes, you forgive, even if the person continues to hurt you, but that does not mean that you stay in an abusive situation. No, you forgive, and by forgiving, you free yourself to obey God, and you remove yourself from the abusive situation. But if you do not forgive, and if you stay in such a situation, you run the risk of... uh, the abuser's behavior. You become uh, what they call codependent. So yes, you forgive even if the person continues to hurt you or try to hurt you, but you don't stay in an abusive situation. And especially if it involves uh, physical harm or children, that sort of thing. Good question. And Father reminds us that, uh, you know, Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And we need to understand that we can't really forgive uh, by our own power. You know, the old adage, to err is human, to forgive divine. Well, (laughs) you and I, we're not divine. But our Lord promised to give us his divine power to forgive. That's why forgiveness is a decision on our part, a decision to accept God's grace in order to forgive. And again, we forgive others for our own sake. And now here's, this is a really good question. Number nine, what if I don't want to forgive? I mean, that's, that's got to be the, the case with an awful lot of folks. What if I don't want to forgive? Well, Father says in that case, you should pray and ask the Lord to change your heart. And that's something that I tell you from personal experience I have seen. Now, uh, number 10, how quickly must I forgive, right? So you have to forgive, even if you don't want to forgive, but but how soon? Well, in, in Matthew 5, 25, our Lord tells us immediately. And that's the point. We're in a self-made jail. We're at a standstill in our relationship with God until we forgive. Hence the words of John Paul II, forgiveness is the restoration of freedom to oneself. We also hear um, the uh, the axiom forgive and forget. And someone asks, what if I forgive, but I cannot forget? You know, it makes me think of uh, something a priest told, me. you know, the priest in confessional, they hear, boy, they hear everything. I mean, I, uh, a priest once told me that within six months of hearing confessions that he had quite literally heard it all. But it is a charism, the priesthood, he says that I hear these confessions and then I forget them. Now, Forgetting offenses committed against us is a different thing. You know, to say forgive and forget, that doesn't mean to you that you, you know, have a spontaneous amnesia. But what it means is that there is no special sting in us when we do remember offenses. And Father Al said, if it hurts us to remember offenses committed against us, either we need healing or we haven't truly forgiven. Number 12, <clears throat> this is a great one. How do I forgive myself? You know, the Bible doesn't speak of forgiving ourselves, but it does say that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And if our love of self is to be the measure of our love for others, well, then there must be such a thing as a properly ordered self-love, right? Love others uh, as you love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. You need to, to love yourself properly. And what does that mean? Well, the church tells us that we love ourselves correctly when our first concern, our primary concern, is the salvation of our souls. And that's also the primary concern of love of neighbor. That's why uh, admonishing the sinner and instructing the ignorant, that's why those are works of mercy, spiritual works of mercy, because our primary concern regarding the love of neighbor is the salvation of their souls. And so if we are called to forgive others, it follows that we must also forgive ourselves. Father said that not forgiving ourselves is a problem that is often resolved when we forgive others. And also, of course, when we pray uh, and receive prayers for healing. Number 13, what if I don't forgive? This is a multi-part answer. First off, we give the devil a chance to work on us. That's that's uh, the way St. Paul warned the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.27. Do not give place to the devil. Do not give the devil an opening in your life. And unforgiveness is that kind of opening. Number two, if we do not forgive, we will be handed over to the torturers, as our Lord says in the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. You know, Father Al said, you know, you're the, forgiv- the unforgiving servant, the parable that... Uh, that he's forgiven by the master, but he refuses to forgive uh, somebody who owes him. And and the, uh, the master has him thrown into prison and given over to the torturers until he's paid the last farthing. And we see in that kind of a, a shadowing of, of purgatory. But but in the immediate context, uh, and it's a parable, and so it's symbolic. Father Al says that when the unforgiving servants hand it over to the torturers, those torturers represent The things that we experience when we refuse to forgive, fear, loneliness, depression, frustration, anxiety, and even self-hatred, right? So that's the second reason why we need to forgive, why not forgiving is such a, a danger. Number three, when we do not forgive, we cut ourselves off from receiving forgiveness, Jesus says in Matthew 6.15, If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. We also cut ourselves off from healing. Sirach 28.3 says, Anyone who can hardly expect healing from the Lord. And we even cut ourselves off from prayer. Mark 11.25, Jesus says, Whenever you stand in prayer, Forgive whatever grievance you have against anybody so that your Father in heaven may forgive your wrongs too. And after all, we pray in every liturgy, several times in every rosary, hopefully every day in our morning and evening prayers, the Our Father. And one of the petitions is we ask God to forgive us as we forgive others. And number four, he says, if we do not forgive, we can lose our appetite. For, for prayer, for the scriptures for mass, for, for and finally, if we persist in unforgiveness, we can cut ourselves off from God forever, we've just listened to admonitions of our Lord, so when I say forever, I really mean forever and the final question is, how do we know, how do I know if I have forgiven and we're going to tackle that when we come back. Also talking about relics in the church and their meaning and uh, lots more when we come back with No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. All right. The final question on Father Forgiveness, number fourteen: How do I know if I have forgiven? Well, once again, forgiveness is not a feeling. It's like like the theological virtue of love, as opposed to the emotion of love. Forgiveness is not a feeling of the will. If you have someone you need to forgive, make the decision right now, to accept God's grace, to forgive them. In fact, right now, decide right now to forgive all who have sinned against you in any way. And just think about it, identify those whom you need to forgive, and then just say, by God's grace, I decide to forgive so-and-so for such-and-such, fill in the blanks, and then repeat as necessary. And then thank our good Lord for the miracle of forgiveness and, and thanks to Father Al Lauer for this list of answers uh, and to questions on forgiveness. You know, it's the, it's the month of the Holy Souls. Take a moment and we pray for Father Al Lauer. Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, may perpetual light shine upon him. May his soul and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. All right. In our gospel for today's program, in the first segment, we read how a woman with an issue of blood was healed just by touching the hem of our Lord's garment. And that inspired me to want to take a look at one of the treasures of our tradition, namely sacred relics. You know, for a lot of converts to the Catholic faith, especially those from evangelical Protestantism, like uh, Dr. Scott Hahn or Steve Ray, Tim Staples, a host of others, there, one big stumbling block coming into the church is Mary, and probably because uh, because of a misunderstanding of our Lord's role as the sole mediator between God and man, as St. Paul says in Hebrews, but for me a convert who was essentially unchurched, I never had any issue with Mary or the Pope or the sacraments or prayer to the saints or any of that, because I was evangelized in a Catholic context that is within the fullness of the faith. But there's one thing that struck me as particularly odd, and that was the Catholic reverence for the relics of the saints. Okay, so let's start at the beginning and and ask what is a sacred relic? Well, you know, a relic is any object connected with a saint, and the church divides them into three classes. So the first class saint is, uh, or first class relic is a part of a saint's body some fragment of his or her remains. Uh, You probably know that every Catholic altar has an altar stone uh, where the consecration takes place, and that within that altar stone is a relic of one of the saints. And this uh, kind of memorializes the practice of the early church in Rome when uh, during the times of persecution, mass was held in the catacombs, and the Eucharist was celebrated on the tombs of the martyrs. So Holy Mass was being celebrated over the remains of the saints from the very earliest days of the church. But the veneration of relics actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament. If you look in 2 Kings 13, 20 and 21, there's a story about the prophet Elisha. It says, Elisha died and was buried. Every year, bands of Moabites used to invade the land of Israel. One time during a funeral, one of those bands was seen and the people threw the corpse into Elisha's tomb and ran off. And as soon as the body came into contact with Elisha's bones, the man came back to life and stood up. So there you have a a miracle, a miracle of resurrection, no less, associated with a first-class relic of a saint. Now, a second-class relic, that's something that uh, the saint used during his or her life. It's a piece of clothing or a a personal article, you know, a, a comb or, or a belt or whatever. Um, and once again, the Old Testament records uh, a miracle story of a second class relic. This time, uh, the prophet Elisha using Elijah's mantle to miraculously part the Jordan. It's in Second Kings chapter 2, 11 and through 14. said, wielding the mantle which had fallen from Elijah, he struck the water. And when Elisha struck the water, it divided and he crossed over. So second-class relics. And then we have third-class relics. And third-class relics are objects that have been touched to a first-class relic. So, for example, when I was in Quito, Ecuador, the sisters gave me some prayer cards with bits of cloth attached to them that had been touched to the body of servant of God, uh, Mariana of Jesus. Also, I have a Padre Pio medal that has a cloth on the back that was touched to his remains. And, And once again, the Bible mentions third-class relics, and once again, in a miraculous context. In Acts 19, 11, and 12, we read, So extraordinary were the mighty deeds, that is, miracles, God accomplished at the hands of Paul, that when face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were applied to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So you have healing and uh, exorcism, through the agency of a third-class relic. In Acts 5, verses 12 and 15 through 16, we read an even more startling account, that many signs and wonders were done among the people at the hands of the apostles. Thus they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on one or another. A large number of people from the towns in the vicinity of Jerusalem also gathered, bringing the sick and those disturbed by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. So the veneration of the relics of the saints flows from the veneration of the saints themselves as models of grace and love and holiness, right? In in the sacramental biblical view, material things can... Reflect the same, the same principle. But what about our Lord and his blessed mother? So of course there are no first class relics of Jesus and Mary because Jesus ascended bodily into heaven. And then later Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven as well. So they didn't leave anything behind. Uh, you know, some kind of new teaching that the church made up centuries after the fact the very absence of any first-class relics of Mary speaks volumes. You know, I used to go to a church that had a relic of St. Peter in the altar, right? but there's no first-class relics of Mary. Second-class relics... churches that claim to have Mary's veil or her slipper or uh, her comb, perhaps a vial of her tears and so on. Um, one of the most striking has to be the Holy House of Loretto. You know, tradition holds that... Um, the Holy House where Mary was born, where the Annunciation took place, was transported to Loretto, Italy on the 10th of December of 1294. Some angels from Nazareth in the Holy Land uh, as the Crusaders were being driven out of Palestine at the end of the 13th century. Countless Catholics have made pilgrimages to the Holy House, including um, Galileo, Mozart, Cervantes, St. Therese of Lisieux. Okay? So lots of sects. Relics of Mary. But what about our Lord? Uh, In the gospel for today's program, we read about the woman being healed just by touching the hem of his garment. And as we've just learned, for something to be considered a first class relic, it has to be an actual part of the body of the saint, you know, a bone, for example. However, in the case of our Lord, anything directly associated with the events of his life is classified as a relic of the highest rank. And there are several that claim our attention. For example, there's um, lots of fragments of the true cross in various churches around the world. The cross was found by St. Helena, and and fragments were spread all over Christendom, including those that are kept in the imperial treasury in Vienna, Austria. That same imperial treasury of Vienna also boasts the holy lance, the lance of Longinus, which uh, pierced the side of Christ, pierced his heart when he was on the cross. The Holy Nails of the Crucifixion. There's another one. One of the nails used in the crucifixion of Jesus is in a, um, a splendid reliquary in the cathedral in Germany at the cathedral of Trier is what's claimed to be the seamless robe of Christ, the one that the soldiers gambled for during his crucifixion. <coughs> Pardon me. Which is prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 19. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. The gifts of the Magi. Uh, The gold and frankincense of myrrh, of course, kept at St. Paul's Monastery at Mount Athos in Greece. The crown of thorns that our Lord wore during his Passion and Crucifixion is in the Cathedral of Notre Dame uh, in the Saint-Chapelle, the Holy Chapel. And that's Notre Dame in Paris, uh, France, by the way, in case you just thought I meant Paris, Texas. (laughs) And we have the the pillar of the flagellation, the, the pillar to which Jesus was tied when he was scourged, and that's kept at the Basilica of Praxades in Rome, Italy, uh, as opposed to Rome. The sign that hung above Jesus on the cross with the words Jews in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, that's kept in Rome at a church uh, interestingly called Basilica of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem, although the, the Basilica is actually in Rome, and the Holy Grail, but she would have, had, would have had to look all over uh, God's green acre, you know, to find the Holy Grail. The chalice used at the Last Supper to institute the Eucharist is in a chapel in the cathedral in, or cathedral in Valencia in Spain. And, of course, the most important relic of all, the Shroud of Turin which is believed to be the burial cloth of Jesus. Or, you know, can I just simply say it is the burial cloth of Jesus? I believe that it is. I'm just going to start saying that. The Shroud of Turin, which is the burial cloth of Jesus, was kept in, in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin. And, and there's a nice collection of photos, by the way, of, of all these relics and, and others as well on the Church Pop website. Uh, I, I will put a link uh, to it in the show notes uh, when they post this podcast. Uh, amazing relics from the life of our Lord Jesus. It's definitely worth a look at the photo of the way that these relics have been preserved and the reliquaries in which they are, are housed. All these amazing relics of our Lord. Great to be Catholic. Uh, relics, one of the true, true tradition and. Catholic, right after this, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Well, if you've listened to this program with any regularity, then you know that I do not define a traditional Catholic as someone who exclusively attends the traditional mass. I define a traditional Catholic as one who can say the act of faith and actually mean it. (laughs) In other words, I I make a distinction between a traditional Catholic and a traditionalist Catholic. Uh, Similarly, uh, a lady named Angela Lill, in an article called Is It Time to Stop Using the Label Traditional Catholic, she says, As a cradle Catholic growing up in the Novus Ordo, I thought, or I had thought, traditional Catholics were those families who were the backbone of parish life. We all know the type. They go to church every Sunday in a passenger van full of kids, actually pray their rosaries every day, and when you are sick or have a new baby, they're at your front doorstep with a hot meal. By the world's standards, they live very traditional lives. Imagine their surprise in recent years to find out that they fall short of the label traditional Catholic. And now for some years, uh, full disclosure, like me, Miss Lill has attended the extraordinary form of the Mass. And she goes on to say how the term traditional Catholic has come to be used to marginalize those who attend the Mass of the Ages. And she says some who use the term traditional Catholic to clump or some use the term traditional Catholic to clump us in with the set of acantists, that is, with those who reject the Pope and Vatican II. We see this even in the once conservative-leaning Bishop Robert Barron's remarks from March of 2020, accusing uh, radically traditional Catholics and arch-traditionalist Catholics of a self-devouring Catholicism. And and you're talking about kind of rank and file. Uh, uh, Catholics that go to the traditional mass. There was backlash, of course. You know, surely Bishop Barron's not talking about folks who simply prefer the traditional Latin mass, but only those extremists that reject the Pope and Vatican II. Well, as Miss Little points out, there's a confusion of terms. And subsequent comments by Bishop Barron and, of course, Pope Francis and various promoters of his uh, motu proprio, traditionis custodis have made it clear that today, Anybody who participates in the traditional Latin mass is immediately suspect. Um, she also reports how the secular press under this term. And she mentioned a Washington Times story um, that uh, it was about President Biden's administration plan to expand the definition of extremism to include pro-life advocates and how the Times paints uh, you know, pro-abortion Catholics like Biden and Pelosi as if they were ordinary and Catholic, you know, as if belief in the sanctity of life was an official Catholic teaching. But now you know, this same paper the Washington Times will use the label traditional in order to portray Catholics who are simply pro-life as if they're dangerous extremists who represent some you know, lunatic fringe of Catholicism. And so, she says, we ought to refuse the label, or refuse to label the practices of the vast majority of ordinary Catholics, saints, and martyrs for well over a thousand years, talking about the traditional Mass, as something somehow fringe or unordinary within the Church herself. Or as Dr. Peter Koznevsky put it, what we are defending is not merely a preference, but an deepest theological foundations. And I agree that labeling the core beliefs of the church obscures the fact that they apply to everyone. Simply put, the church's traditional teachings and liturgy belong to all Roman Catholics. And that's certainly no nonsense. And speaking of the core beliefs of the church, there is, like it or not, a divide amongst Catholics today. And the powers that be want to make it about the liturgy. Benedict XVI dubbed the traditional mass the extraordinary form and the novus ordo, ordo, the ordinary form. So I guess you could say there's a divide between ordinary Catholics and extraordinary Catholics. You know, American Catholics who attend the novus ordo have been repeatedly surveyed uh, about their the CARA, the Center for Applied Research of the Apostles at Georgetown, and others. And you, you look at these. Uh, Alarming statistics. These were shared a few years ago in the book *Forming Intentional Disciples* by Sherry Waddell. It says, uh, at that time, this is probably, I think the book came out in 2018. Only 30% of Americans who were raised Catholic are still practicing. Only 10% of all adults or 10% of all adults in America are ex-Catholics. 79% of cradle Catholics become unaffiliated and cease identifying, identifying by age 23. And currently. For Americans raised Catholics, okay, hold on to your seat. For Americans raised Catholic, the best guarantee of stable church attendance as an adult is if they become Protestants. But the thing that was not included in that research up to this point was responses from Catholics who attend the traditional Latin Mass. So, and these Catholics attend something like 500 Sunday Masses uh, nationwide as, as of 2019. And you may know, I consider myself a traditional Catholic. I attend a traditional Latin mass at a diocesan parish with my family. I wrote a book for Ignatius Press called Confessions of a Traditional Catholic. And I hasten to add that, uh, again, when I use that term, it's distinct from traditionalist Catholic. You know, I, I believe that you can be a traditional Catholic without exclusively attending the traditional mass. That was uh, Miss Lill's point, is that those, those people at her parish that, uh, you know, can say the act of faith and mean it and live a Catholic life are really deserve to be called traditional Catholics, even though they go to the Novus Ordo. Now it's about embracing everything the Catholic church teaches, not, not some of what it teaches, not the stuff I'm comfortable with, but all the truths, as it says in the act of faith, all the truths the Catholic church believes and teaches because they've been revealed by God. But, you know, because that term traditional has so much baggage, that's why I have coined the term no-nonsense Catholic. Because you can certainly hold the Catholic faith whole and entire without attending the, the, you know, extraordinary form of the Mass. All that said, however, the Church is still in demographic freefall, except for traditional Latin Mass Catholics. And back in 2018, Father Donald Kloster was a priest in Bridges, permitted uh, survey research and he undertook to study and measure the fruits of the two mass comparing responses from people attending the traditional mass to those who attend the Novus Ordo. And his results covered several topics um, and we'll just go here, just go through the list. Number one was approval of contraception. All right, Novus Ordo Catholics, 89% surveyed say they approve of contraception Whereas traditional Latin Catholic approval of abortion. And I can't even believe that it's 1%. Um, <clears throat> weekly mass attendance for the Novus Ordo is 22%, for the traditional mass is 99%. The approval of same sex marriage. For Novus Ordo, 67%. For traditional Latin Mass, 2%. The the percentage of income donated uh, to the church, for the Novus Ordo, it's a little over 1% for the traditional Latin Mass uh, goers. It's 6%. Uh, Annual, at least annual confession. Amongst the Novus Ordo, 25%. And the traditional Latin Mass, 98%. Okay, so regardless of which... Mass you attend, I'm going to ask you a question. Which of those two groups do you think you have the most in common with? You know, with apologies to Jeff Foxworthy, if you go to confession at least once a year, you might be a traditional Catholic. Uh, And I think it was Brent Petrie that pointed out years ago that the difference, primary difference between the Novus Ordo Mass and the traditional Latin Mass, is that so much that used to be explicit in the old Mass is now only implicit in the new Rite. So references to such things as the wrath of God or masses of sacrifice, sin is the greatest evil, the existence of hell. These things were either toned down or removed altogether on the basis that everybody already knows that stuff and the liturgy shouldn't make people uncomfortable. Uh, and that message has been absorbed so thoroughly by our pastors that the, the number one criticism from the surveys of the synod on synodality is homilies homilies that focus more on pop psychology or politics than on the faith. So a generation after the Novus Ordo is introduced, the vast majority of Catholics don't go to Mass at all, arguably because they don't even realize they're obliged to. So Sherry Waddell has to write a book telling Catholic leaders they need to form disciples. Gosh, who would have ever thought of that? Protestant converts like Scott Hahn tell us we need to learn the Bible story of salvation. Charismatics tell us that Catholics ought to pray together outside of Mass. And why? Why do they have to tell us this? Well, it's simply to recover knowledge and habits that Catholics used to acquire naturally just from going to Mass. See, like so many things in life, we don't realize what we've lost till it's gone. And that's one of the reasons, no doubt, why traditional Latin Mass parishes are growing instead of declining in spite of Traditiones Custodes. And then in in, um, March of 2020, right before the COVID lockdowns, Father Klaascher produced a follow-up survey precisely for Catholics, uh, traditional Latin math Catholics, in the demographic of 18 to 39. 40% of them are married, 53% single, 1% in the priesthood, 2% in religious life, and 4% in formation. That's really important to growth, that there's more men and women in formation than currently ordained or consecrated and 80% of them have considered a vocation. 98% go to Mass every Sunday. 90%—amazingly, 90% were not raised traditional Catholics, but a solid majority were raised by two married parents. And a a majority, 65%, had fathers who regularly attended church. See, these are the things that that matter so much. And it's interesting to me that a a majority didn't— haven't, you know, they've they decided themselves to go to the traditional Latin Mass. Now, 16% say that their parents brought them there. But for the rest, it was friends, curiosity, solemnity. The number one factor, though, the number one factor that leads 18 to 39-year-olds to the traditional Latin Mass, some 35% of them, is reverence. So this important demographic, distinctly underrepresented at Novus Ordo parishes, is part of this growing movement. You know, and, and I count myself blessed to assist at a traditional Mass on Sundays, even after traditionis Custodes. And I think that you know, it, it continues to grow in spite of persecution, even though it's a clear minority. You might even say a remnant, one that Benedict XVI predicted back in 2009. He said, when the trial of the sifting is passed, men will discover that little flock of believers as something entirely new. And they'll discover it as a hope that's meant for them and an answer for which they have always been searching. Or as somebody once said, a pearl of great price. And that's no nonsense. Hey, thanks for being with us again this week. We'll do it all again uh, next Wednesday. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. And may God richly bless you and your family.